What have we learned about the Civil War since the sesquicentennial? I'm Chris Mikowski, and today on the Emerging Civil War podcast, we'll have a roundtable discussion with some of my ECW colleagues about the lessons we've learned in the 10 years since the Civil War's 150th, today on the Emerging Civil War podcast. Happy New Year from Emerging Civil War. To celebrate, we're finally releasing the next book in the Emerging Civil War series. I know, it feels like it's been forever since we've had one. The coronavirus pandemic has been hard on independent publishers, and that rippled on down to us, so we've been on hold for a while. But that changes this month. Check out Embattled Capital, A Guide to Richmond in the Civil War by Doug Crenshaw and Burt Dunkerley. It'll be available this month. The best place to get it, along with a free signed book plate, is directly from our publisher, Savis Beatty. Go to www.savisbeatty.com to order your copy of Embattled Capital, A Guide to Richmond in the Civil War, part of the Emerging Civil War series. And look for more titles later this spring. Welcome to the Emerging Civil War Podcast. I'm Chris Mikowski, and today I am joined by three of my esteemed Emerging Civil War colleagues. I'm going to start on my screen, left to right, Cecily Nelson-Zander coming to us from Happy Valley, Pennsylvania tonight. Cecily, welcome. Thanks. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Glad to have you with us. Sarah K. Byerly, the managing editor of Emerging Civil War with New Market in the, back, uh, the background. Uh, how are you doing tonight, Sarah? Doing well, thank you. Excited to be having this discussion. Wonderful. And I uh, I can never pass up the opportunity to say that Sarah's the one who keeps the lights on and things moving behind the scenes at Emerging Civil War. So I always like to heap praise on you when I can. So, uh, And last but not least, my fellow Buffalo Bills fan coming from uh, Western New York, or actually by way of uh, the Bristow Station Battlefield, the managing editor of our editorial board, Kevin Pollack. Kevin, good evening. Good evening. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you with us. So the the three smart minds that are with me tonight have agreed to sit down and we're going to have a conversation about what we've learned about the Civil War since the sesquicentennial. Coming up on the blog, we've got a series running, uh, getting ready for the 160th anniversary. Uh, so it's been 10 years since the sesquicentennial already. So we thought it would be a good opportunity for us to maybe take a look and see what has happened in that intervening decade. And I just tossed this out to the three of you. Can you believe it's been 10 years already? No. <laughs> no. A lot of shaking heads. So let me ask you, start here. Uh, 10 years ago, Cecily, where were you? Um, I was a junior in high school in Colorado. Um, so I had taken AP history, uh, US history, and, and um, had just finished actually in the summer of 2011, my first visit to a Civil War battlefield. So my family came out and did the Washington DC uh, sort of spiel and we visited Manassas and Gettysburg. And, you know, obviously I, I loved it. It was something I'd read about and it was exciting to see it. And uh, I went back home and, and then in, in 2012 started at the University of Virginia. So I spent most of the sesquicentennial studying the Civil War uh, as an undergraduate at UVA. 
so I suppose if we were to ask what have we learned since, it would be a lot for you. Uh, uh, yeah. Sarah, how about you? I was also a junior in high school. I was in California. Um, I was homeschooled. Um, so at that point, I was already looking at options for taking college classes. And I was um, insanely jealous of everyone who was on the East Coast and getting to go to all the events. I got to read about them in the magazines and occasionally get to watch a video um, online, but I really wasn't even on the computer a whole lot at that point. So at least when it started. So yeah, some big changes. Yeah, very good. Well, at least you got to come to the East Coast and you don't have to be jealous anymore, right? Isn't it? Right. <laughs> Kevin, how about you? 10 years ago, where were you? Yeah, uh, being a Harper's Ferry guy and uh, working on uh, history of John Brown's raid, I'll never forget. I, I had imagined the 150th anniversary of the Civil War starting with John Brown's raid, and I'll never forget wanting to go to Harper's Ferry for the 150th anniversary, and instead I was at uh, Cedar Creek, actually, for the Civil War reenactment that was mm -hmm. taking place there, and I remember thinking I was so close to Harper's Ferry coming from New York and wanting to, to, uh, to go there, but uh, ultimately, couldn't, but uh, I guess by, by 2011, once the 150th really officially kicked off, I was uh, uh, a freshman in high school, or excuse me, not in high school, uh, in college um, at that point. Um, had gone from New York down to Shepherd University, and so it was kind of in the, uh, in the heart of it all. Now, I recall uh, when, when the sesquicentennial was going on, I actually had uh, a season at uh, Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania National Military Park, and I recall there was a lot of comparison between the sesquicentennial and the centennial, and, you know, kind of a lot, a lot of that backward looking, but it, it sounds like for the three of you that the sesquicentennial was kind of your coming of age for the Civil War, so that's a, a pretty interesting perspective for me, so in the, in the last 10 years, uh, you know, how, how, what have you learned? How have you, how have you seen that perspective shift? Uh, Sarah, let me, let me toss it out to you to start. Um, sure. So I just, one of the things that um, I've personally experienced, and then I think it's also true across the history field, is we've seen a lot more resources um, become digital, which has its benefits and its disadvantages. Um, but I just think about when I was um, still West Coast, California, but starting to do in-depth research, um, more recently, I guess it would be, um, just how much has been digitized from archives and then archives that are working on that. I see that as a really big and a positive change. There's a lot more primary source information that is more accessible. And that's pretty exciting. Kevin, how about you? Um, well, one thing that's definitely changed for me, I agree with Sarah about the, the digitization of, of so many different sources, but uh, for me personally, I guess it's been my own personal access to those sources, as you can see behind me, and as you can see behind many of us, I'm sure. Uh, I know Sarah and Chris have the artificial backgrounds, but, uh, you know, the books of building my own book collection and being able to access a lot of that just at the, uh, by sliding my computer chair from one bookshelf to the next um, is, is, has really been um, incredible for me in terms of me personally accessing uh, a lot of those sources and being able to, to pull them off the, sh the shelf and read them uh, has been really enlightening for me and has really broadened my horizons when it comes to the American Civil War, but also broadened my knowledge, I feel like. Kevin, do you think that's because uh, we got out of school and we got jobs and we made money to buy the books? <laughs> oh, easily, absolutely. Uh, though, as I'm sure, uh, like many of you, I'm a, uh, a proprietor of used bookstores where I can find the books cheaper. Yes. Out. 
so I take advantage of that when I can. A lot of head nodding there. Nothing says research geek like a big, unsexy metal file cabinet in your background, Kevin. So uh, I, it's a badge of honor right there. It is. Yeah. Everybody always asks me, why do I have a filing cabinet? All I have to say is Civil War research. I've got <laughs> files. <That's funny>. <laughs> <laughs> Cecily, how about you? Well, you know, I've spent basically all of this time in school. Um, so uh, um, for me, it's really been a broadening of the era. And one thing I think the sesquicentennial did that maybe the centennial didn't is, is really expand what the Civil War field is. Um, you know, it was a much bigger tent, I felt like in the sesquicentennial and thinking about the era in a, in a sort of a, a longer temporal aspect. So we talk about, um, you know, antebellum events like Kevin brought up John Brown's raid as, as part of the sesquicentennial, maybe even, you know, bleeding Kansas and then on into the sesquicentennial reconstruction and kind of the way that now we're thinking about that as part of the war and an extension of the war. So for me, it's really been a, it's sort of been an extended anniversary and thinking about, um, you know, you start kind of reading about the war and what excites you is that, and then you kind of add on and kind of, you, you just get, you get this kind of big, um, thing which is exciting on the one hand and sometimes a headache you know on, on the other hand but i think mostly thrilling yeah, that uh that telescoping yeah. perspective that you know if we were to say what's the event that starts the civil war how would you guys answer that where does the civil war start kevin I'll, I'll rotate over to you to start that one yeah um I, i'm i'm biased i'll admit uh having worked at harper's ferry in the sesquicentennial of the um the Battle of Harper's Ferry during the Maryland campaign. But I think there is an argument to be made for um, John Brown's raid. And it was something that we talked a lot about with visitors at Harper's Ferry that, you know, maybe John Brown's raid was not the thing that immediately started the Civil War. Um, I, I would lay the argument there at, at the election of Abraham Lincoln, uh, because very quickly when Lincoln is elected, um, you start to see things accelerate, of course, with the secession of South Carolina, the secession of the Deep South states, and then, of course, springing into the bombardment of Fort Sumter and the, and the withdrawal of the Upper South states. But, but John Brown, even though he's dead uh, months before the election of 1860, does have a role to play in how that election plays out and how Southerners and Northerners view each other. So I think there is an argument, as, as both Northerners and Southerners admitted after the Civil War, um, many, including somebody as high in authority as Frederick Douglass, said that the first shots of the war were not fired in Charleston Harbor in South Carolina, but they were fired in downtown Harpers Ferry. So I'd, I'd have to go with, I think that's really the, the thing that gets things moving uh, on a faster pace is, is John Brown's raid. Cecily, how about you? You know, you know, being a, a Westerner and, you know, I was just for my research looking at um, how Congress debated um, the army in the wake of Kansas and Nebraska and and how Franklin Pierce used the military to kind of um, prop up the what what Republicans called the illegitimate government of Kansas and and just really what comes out of those debates is how much the events in Kansas and Nebraska divided um democrats and republicans and then the kind of internal splits in in both of the parties and it became increasingly clear to me that the chances of reconciliation after kansas and nebraska seem vanishingly slim and then the election of lincoln seems to certainly cap that off you know with the democrats splitting and you know the separate unionist party that emerges with with john bell um but as someone who thinks about you know if you want to think about it in a limited way um I studied the army and uh, 
So when Lincoln calls for those volunteers and basically commits to that escalation, I think there's kind of a no turning back point there also. So in the broad sense, I think things start to get almost irreconcilably divided Kansas and Nebraska. But then when Lincoln kind of puts his foot down and says, we're going to bring out 300,000 volunteers and, and, and they're going to have bayonets and we're going to force you back into the union. I, I don't know that there's much turning back, you know, when, when that kind of breach is, is made on Lincoln's part. Sarah, how about you? I appreciate the, the early effects that Cecily and Kevin have talked about, but I think I've been thinking of December 20th and South Carolina's secession as a starting point for the war. Because although shots aren't fired at that point, it's kind of a culmination of all the lead up with um, bloody Kansas, John Brown, Lincoln's secession, or excuse me, Lincoln's election, which then certain Southern states are pushed into secession. Um, and so I kind of see that because there's definite militia formation going on in the South. They're trying to form a collection of states into this Confederacy. Um, and then um, definitely you have troop movement in the South even prior to Fort Sumter and then that call for volunteers. So. At this time, in my thinking as it stands right now, um, I'm going to go with December 20th and South Carolina secession. What do you think, Chris? Well, yeah, I was going to say, and the reason I ask is because what, I think once upon a time, if you said, where's the Civil War start? Everyone will point to Fort Sumter, you know, and that mm -hmm. was kind of the very traditional starting point. And look, we've got three different answers. I'll throw my answer in. I always uh, try to be provocative and say, when Thomas Jefferson wrote, all men are created equal, mm. that sets the road to Civil War. Um, that's true. That's not an interpretation that was popular once upon a time, because that implies that slavery is the cause of the Civil War, which is something that uh, mm -hmm. is pretty well settled now, even though you'll find a lot of people who will uh, debate and discuss that and try to argue against it. Um, but once upon a time, that never even came into the conversation. Uh, one mm -hmm. of the things that the, uh, the controversial 1619 project from the New York Times tried to suggest was that as soon as slavery showed up here in the new world, that's going to lead to civil war. And I think mm -hmm. uh, for me, one of the things that's been really interesting over the last 10 years is that we've been able to extend the conversation about the start of the war, the causes of the war in ways that we couldn't really have, um, certainly at the centennial, but I don't think that we were even prepared to have at the sesquicentennial. So, uh, yeah, and, and I'm just delighted that, you know, kind of going down the Hollywood squares here, we've got a bunch of different answers, um, both the quick answer and the more subtle, nuanced, um, uh, in-depth answer. So I think that that's pretty cool. So let me, um, then using Cecily's telescope metaphor again, let's go to the other end of the war. And, you know, what's our obligation as historians to um, look at that story past Appomattox? Mm-hmm. Cecily, I think I'm back to you as I'm rotating through here. Yeah, I think um, it's a it's a sort of tricky question, and and uh, the war has to end. I feel like the ultimate thing is like if it's a if it's an object of study, it has to have a, a sort of a beginning and an end point, and it can have consequences that we can unravel. Um, but I think it is important that we give a concrete kind of ending because 
um, it gives us, you know, a way to frame our understanding. And so, um, you know, I do think that uh, the Civil War ends with the surrender uh, of the Confederacy and, and probably in, in many ways, um, the surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia. I have spent um, my undergraduate thesis, and, and I still kind of can't let it go, um, was on the Grand Review of Union Armies. And I think symbolically, I really feel like that is for many Northerners, the end of the war. I mean, it's this kind of massive culmination of the spirit of unionism and this idea that a citizen soldiery can can win a war and that they persevered in, in the face of all odds. The, the chances of the union winning, you know, were not, you know, preordained. So I think, you know, the Grand Reviews event is really the North saying we've won a civil war. Now what comes after, we have to figure out how to make the gains of emancipation real. And we have to kind of realize this. And in many ways they go back to what they were doing before. The pre-war period is all about Western settlement. And it's all about how are they gonna bring these territories acquired, you know, in the 1840s, you know, under control. But now they have one unified political vision for that. There's not a divided vision between slavery and free labor. There's a free labor vision for the West and that's going to be put into place. So you're gonna reconstruct the South and then you're gonna turn your attention to kind of what it always been. If we go back to Jefferson, a goal. This is, you know, how are we going to complete an empire from Atlantic to Pacific? Um, I think the Civil War is a moment in which they have to kind of put that on pause. There's still things happening out there. Um, and I think probably, you know, one thing we can talk about is, is the West and our framework for the war. Um, but I think if you'd ask 19th century Americans, and, you know, we want to be faithful to that evidence, um, they would have said that the war began and ended, you know, 1861 to 1865. And then we can talk about the effects it had after. So mm -hmm. I'll say the Grand Review um, for now. But uh, from a narrative from a narrative point of view, though, that's that's such a, a a tidy point because from there it's about going home, and you know that implies closure. We're done. If this was still going on, we wouldn't be going home. So right. you know, narratively, that makes a lot of sense. Sarah, how about you? I really like the concept of grand review. Um, traditionally, I've usually thought of it as the military surrenders. So. Appomattox, Surrender in North Carolina. Um, I usually just focus on those. I know that there were other Confederate surrenders, but those were kind of the ones that took the big armies out of the field and was signaling an end. Um, but another idea that I've been considering is what about Lincoln's assassination? Is And that's right in there, right in that same time period as those surrenders kind of actually right in between them. Um, but does Lincoln's assassination signal the end of the war era and the stepping in of Reconstruction? Just some thoughts. And of course, because, you know, the dominoes don't fall neatly and in order, you know, you get into some hazy times there. And so right. uh, and I always think about the, uh, the atomic bomb. And is that the last shot of World War II or the mm. shot of the Cold War? And hmm. Lincoln's assassination can, is kind of one of those same sorts of really pivotal moments that um, could be puzzled out in, in a couple of different ways. Uh, Kevin. Yeah, I, I would agree. You know, Lincoln's assassination has so many, um, while it's an ugly topic, obviously, it has so many neat things about it that, you know, Lincoln dies uh, the morning of April 15th, 1865. The Union garrison at Fort Sumter leaves, departs Fort Sumter the morning of April 15, 1861. Um, you look at World War II, the German invasion of, of Poland begins September 1st, 1939. 
And, you know, the Japanese surrender is signed early September 1945. It's just perfect bookends if you look at the, the dates um, of things. And, you know, how much more perfectly could you frame it that the main Confederate army, or at least the, the, the Confederate army that the Confederacy is, is weighing most of its support into, the Army of Northern Virginia surrenders, and then five days later, Lincoln is assassinated. Um, it, it does fit as, as perfect bookends. Um, for the war. But I would say, you know, to, to expand a little bit more broadly, if you want to, the military surrenders of the Confederacy are definitely um, a game changer. Because while uh, I think folks have argued that Reconstruction still exhibits a lot of the violence that you see during the American Civil War, it's on a vastly different scale. You don't see armies of tens of thousands of men engaging in open field combat anymore. Uh, Reconstruction uh, as far as the South is concerned, is still a lot about um, trying to protect those pre-war values as much as possible, but it's in a very different way. And, you know, the game plan is completely different um, at that point. So I think there, there has to be a line drawn at the military surrenders of the Confederacy because the, the game plan changes significantly um, at that point. So I think the, the time period between April and really June of 1865, if you want to throw in the surrenders of Joseph Johnston and Edmund Kirby Smith, uh, and you know those other Confederate forces besides the Army of Northern Virginia, do mark, I think, a, a hard, solid line that we can look at as the end of open hostilities uh, that sort of confine this time period as the American Civil War, as we like to think of it. Although I think it's interesting because you say, and those other Confederate armies, so which suggests there's not really a hard line because like, well, there's still some more domino, you know, and having stood out in the middle of Dokesville, Oklahoma, where the last Confederate uh, surrender actually took place, and it's like, oh, well, this is kind of, you know, by that point, the, the, the narrative thread has really turned into something completely different, which I think is why for so long Appomattox served as that really great neat and tidy surrender and, and great, you know, passing of the armies and uh, men acting with honor, et cetera, et cetera, because it really gets sloppy uh, after that. And, and maybe there isn't quite that, that delineation. Um, I, I want to ask you a little bit more about reconstruction. Uh, you know, and my own thinking on this has been pretty heavily influenced by our colleague Brian Matthew Jordan in his book, uh, Marching Home. And he talks about how the, the veterans themselves really didn't see the surrenders as the end of the war because mm -hmm. they hadn't really settled the question uh, that they had gone to war for. Yes, there was union, but what was that going to look like? And was everybody going to behave? And, and then, you know, that contributes to the messiness. Uh, so there's this unfinished business that happens. Is that something that that as uh, as scholars that we're we're you know how do how do we how do we deal with that you know so uh, Sarah I think you're up I gave you really a complicated question. All right, um, I think the Reconstruction era is very important, and I think it's something that we start putting together like a puzzle with the rest of the Civil War. And so much of it, it's not so much of the military puzzle, although Cecily, you might have some more insight on that than I do, um, but it's the political, it's the social, it's the ideology. And that's really important. And so much of what happens after the armies surrender, after the last shots are fired, um, is part of what defines how the Civil War was remembered and some of just those nuances that come out of it. Um, 
I have an interest in the Reconstruction era, but I mostly just read a lot about it and try to then take that information and bring it into what I'm focusing on in the more traditional four years of the Civil War. Cecily, I'm going to bounce back to you and then I'll come back to Kevin, but just since Sarah said, Cecily, maybe you might have something to add to that. So I think it's, it's um, you know, I think of Andy Lang's work about occupation um, and this kind of question of uh, martial law. One of the most important things I think for people to understand about kind of reconstruction is that we are also in the midst of a, a massive de-escalation of a federal bureaucracy that was built up during the war. And that is almost immediately kind of pivoted to how small, like how, like how can we pare this down? And one way to do that is, is to get rid of as many volunteers as possible immediately. I mean, it's amazing 750,000 men mustered out of service in a matter of months and really control turned back over to the regular army who are a very small um, force that are, you know, kind of not only having to deal with the reconstruction of the South and martial law, but also this massive Western territory, which actually gets bigger during the war because it's in the middle of the war that gold's discovered in Montana. So suddenly, um, you know, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, this entire Powder River region becomes a concern. You have an overburdened army um, that many people think comes out of the Civil War stronger, but in many ways, you know, comes out of it more burdened than it had ever been before and, and under more pressure. Um, and of course, regular soldiers hate doing political work. And so they resent, you know, what they have to do in reconstruction. So for the army, I think it's, it's a real point of frustration and a kind of needle in their side. You know, I always think of George Custer who, kind of splits the period between reconstruction service and service in the west and he loathes reconstruction he can't wait to get back out onto the plains um, because he believes that's what an army is supposed to be doing um so that question of if it can we different differentiate reconstruction from the civil war if you're a, an army officer absolutely they're kind of fundamentally different jobs and, and you don't have the volunteers anymore the citizen soldiers have gone home um you know and they're kind of readjusting to their their lives and you know in the way that that brian talks about it they have their kind of personal ways in which they have to deal with the war's costs and consequences and sometimes those are very personal in terms of wounds and injuries uh, and sometimes there's sort of these bigger political questions um militarily i think a very two very different um situations so that's that's often how how i think about it and you know, and you mentioned Custer specifically, and I think like going from Major General Custer to Colonel <laughs> Custer, like and so it, it, he, couldn't, yeah, yeah. he couldn't handle it. He was just <laughs> apoplectic. It, yeah, it was it was bad. <laughs> Kevin, how about you? Yeah, I think sort of a just a personal anecdote um, that I remember when I was in college. Um, we had two separate courses. We had an American Civil War course, which covered roughly 1850 to 1865. And then there was a separate reconstruction course, which I remember talking to several of my other history friends that were at different universities about how unique that was. Uh, that typically you have one class that's 1850 to 1877. And um, I remember considering myself lucky actually, because I think to consider the two the two are one, you know, you, you can't understand the Civil War without looking into Reconstruction. You can't understand Reconstruction, obviously, without understanding the Civil War. But I think it was so nice to be able to study both in, in such detail, um, because obviously by 
by having two classes that cover a 27 year period as compared to one class that covers a 27 year period, it allows you to delve a lot deeper into these topics about how did what happened in the Civil War reflect how reconstruction was going to play out. Um, and, and unfortunately, well, fortunately for me at least, um, shortly after I had taken both those classes, um, my university had melded the two together. Um, and, and so that it, it was two, but I do think they are two separate periods, but they, you know, you, you can't understand one without the other um, easily enough. And, and I think reconstruction obviously has gotten the short end of the stick because it is much more of a messy topic. It's something that's not quite as well defined. Um, you know, Americans or really not just Americans, but human beings like to have eras defined by dates, solid hard dates, because it's easy. It's easy to study it that way. It's easy to break it off and know when you're transporting from one era to the next. Uh, Reconstruction is not that way um, as much as we'd like to think about it. And I think you've seen that since the 150th that we thought of Reconstruction as 1865 to 1877 as soon as Hayes becomes president, but Reconstruction has become a lot more than that. And so I think the end date of Reconstruction has become a lot more fuzzy. Um, But I think to to combine the two does a bit of disservice to the Civil War era, as we call it, and the Reconstruction era. Um, because while they are very much inseparable, it you, you gloss over a lot of detail, I think. While they're inseparable, they must be separated. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it sounds very, um, uh, you know, going, uh, but yes, I, yeah, it, it sounds odd to think that, but I think it's very important uh, to do that, because I think there has been a, a tendency, and I, I would call it a bit of an over-tendency, to try and combine Reconstruction with the American Civil War. But I think, as we've said here, there is clearly a delineation between the two eras, between the two periods, uh, that I think is important to make if you're going to understand one from the other. And uh, For me, I think I like the idea of Reconstruction as being an extension of the Civil War. It's not a hot war, it's not a cold war, it's kind of lukewarm in some ways. Um, But only because like Reconstruction I think is so important uh, because of its ramifications in modern society and particularly with racial issues. And and so by piggybacking it with the Civil War is sort of a way to try to get people to understand Reconstruction a little bit better because I think we need to, because otherwise I think it does get the short end of the stick, as you say. Um, yeah. So I guess conceptually, I would like people to to look at them a little bit more holistically, but that idea of, uh, you know, that shift, everybody goes home. You know, that's yeah, kind of- yeah. And, and if I may, to clarify my point, um, when I was in college, you could not just take the Civil War course. It was required that you take the Civil War course and then Reconstruction. So it wasn't one or the other, uh, but it was nice because it gives you more time to delve into the deeper topics um, of both of those eras. So I, I count myself as very lucky to be able to do that. So let me tie this back to the, our explicit theme today about you know what we've learned since the sesquicentennial. We're having this broad conversation about beginnings and endings and you know narrative flow and neat and tidy history and stuff. How, how have we been able to have that conversation differently now than we could have 10 years ago? And essentially I'm seeing you give some nods here, so I'll, I'll pitch it over to you there. You know, I think um, a lot of it is, um, you know, this, you know, one thing that, that I think has been interesting is the, the kind of rise of interest in 
in the politics of union um, and, and during the sesquicentennial and since, um, you know, in terms of academic histories, um, kind of interest in studying the, the Confederacy and particularly the Confederate Army has it's kind of declined, but interest in studying the Union Army, the Army of the Potomac, someone like Zach Fry's book, or, you know, like the work of, um, like I said, Andy Lang again, or this work on Reconstruction is really about union and emancipation. So I think this wave of new work that's really grappling with the two great achievements of the war, that, that is the preservation of the union and emancipation are allowing us to have conversations about reconstruction because that is about how do you rebuild a union and then how do you um, make the gains of emancipation kind of real for four million formerly enslaved people. So I think that rise in interest in studying the, the union perspective and our understanding of, of nationalism from the United States perspective has been really important. And, and the recovery of someone like Ulysses S. Grant's reputation, either Joan Law's work or the big biography by, by Ron Chernow that we're starting to understand these people. And, and you know, one of the great things about reconstruction is none of those great union personalities go away. Sherman's there, Sheridan's there, Custer's there. We just need to start telling their stories beyond kind of Appomattox. You know, what 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 can we, you know, talk about with them? Because they, they have kind of interesting narratives in the way that they start to think about these questions and 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 articulate them more in this kind of treasure trove of documents that we could we could really explore with reconstruction. So for me, part of what it is, is that I think during the sesquicentennial and after, it's this revival of an interest in, in union and, and the union side of the war. Um, whereas I really associate the centennial with still some of this Lee lost cause, you know, these these kinds of, of topics, which which were just part of the historiography and the literature then, you know, someone like Douglas Southall Freeman is not read today, you know, uh, whereas at the centennial, he was probably one of the more popular authors, you know, an introduction to the field for many people. So I think that shift has been and critical and certainly has informed the way, you know, I understand and think about the war in, in 2020. I'm out of order. Kevin, I'm going to jump over to you and then I'll jump back to Sarah. Yeah, I, I want to jump off a quick point that Cecily made of, um, you know, with, with biographies of, uh, especially now, lately Union generals. Um, I can remember picking up biographies before the sesquicentennial and it would, the book would be branded a biography of, let's say Ulysses S. Grant and you'd get one chapter about his entire life before the American Civil War, 24 chapters about his time in the Civil War and then a chapter afterwards about his life after the war, even though this guy's president of the United States for two terms. And um, you have, I think, started to see that shift where the Civil War is not being short shrifted in terms of biographies, but it's being Obviously, the Civil War presents us with so much source material um, about these folks, whether it's the ORs, battles, and leaders, just their personal correspondence. But you are starting to see the Civil War is, is um, being represented better as a four-year period amongst somebody's life as compared to, you know, it seems like if somebody lived 80 years and you read a biography of them, it seems like they fought the Civil War for 75 years. And then, uh, you know, they had two and a half years before, two and a half years after. And so it has been nice to see that that footprint of these generals and these soldiers expanded upon to what was their experience before the war? How did that shape their experience during the war? And then how did their wartime experience shape their lives after the war? Uh, so it, I think the sesquicentennial has brought that out a lot more. It's sort of drawn out the period that we tend to look at these participants, whether they're 
civilians that were on the home front that survived the war, generals that were on the front lines calling the shots, or soldiers that were the ones executing those shots. Um, and I think it's been kind of a refreshing thing to see. It's been nice to see that. I always refer to those sorts of biographies that you're, you're mentioning as Bruce Springsteen biographies in that they're talking about glory days, you know, and so here we've got the 25 chapters about the war and a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but boy, I got to sit there at the bar and have a drink and talk about the good old days, you know, and so that's where sort of that emphasis is. Uh, Sarah, what are you thinking? So I really like the points that have been brought up. Um, I'd kind of tack on to what Kevin was saying a little bit and say that it's been refreshing to see a bit more combination of the civilian to military. Um, and I'll use biography as the example, but I'm seeing it in battle stuff a little bit sometimes, um, definitely a little more in campaigns, um, studies and those sorts of things. Um, but just to take the biography as the example, older biographies might say, yeah, the general was married and he had four kids, but these newer biographies are starting to draw more on the family correspondence, trying to help us really see that general as a person and that he might be affected by what's going on on his own personal home front. And as someone who's very interested in the civilian side of the story, um, I think that's really refreshing to see. I'm hoping that we might be seeing an emerging trend to look at the historiography of how an event, campaign, battle, person's life, that would be biography, hoping we'll see some looking back at how have they been portrayed in the past or interpreted in the past and what influences were in that. Um, that's something that I've been grappling with with a biography project that I'm working on right now is this person, the way he was written about in 1960s with the centennial, how does that add up with the primary sources of his life? And how has that really shaped the legend of how he's seen? Is that legend even accurate? I'm hoping those sorts of questions um, are coming to the forefront and will continue um, through the 160th and beyond. So, uh, you know, listen to what the three of you are talking about, and, and I think about, again, going back as far as the centennial, which was very military focused, and then the sesquicentennial really kind of brought in the shift to more social history, um, more memory studies, which, you know, certainly become uh, very important. Um, then there's the dark turn uh, kind of school that has arisen through Gilpin Faust, uh, Brian Matthew Jordan, some of those folks. Um, what do you guys see as kind of the next evolving way that we can be looking at the at the field based on kind of what's going on in the last 10 years. Uh, Kevin, I, th I think you're up first this one. Oh boy. Yeah, uh, I know. This is, one, this is the one I didn't want to be up first for. Um, you know, I, I thought it was interesting. A book that I read this year that I really enjoyed that Cecily has already brought up was um, Zach Fry's Republic in the Ranks. Great book. And yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and something that Zach mentioned specifically that he did that sort of made his book stand out was looking at newspapers. And, you know, so often I think there, there's been a lot of good books focused on, especially because for the United States armies, it's about, you know, invading the South. I mean, you think of Mark Grimsley's Hard Hand of War uh, and that Northern army interaction with Southern civilians. But I think looking Looking back uh, themselves, I think James McPherson in, in Battle Cry of Freedom refers to it as the fire in the rear. Um, 
about how Northern soldiers interacted with the Northern home front and how Southern soldiers interacted with the Southern home front. And you look at newspapers, newspaper letters that soldiers write that appear in newspapers, both the Northern and Southern newspapers about their experiences on the front lines. Um, Zach does a, an excellent job of talking about these resolutions that regiments draft from their encampments that are published in Northern newspapers. Of course, he focused on the Army of the Potomac to influence how Northerners on the home front are going to vote. Uh, I think that was a very unique dynamic that so often when we think about, again, the military-civilian interaction, it's uh, Northern soldiers and Southern civilians, or of course, in the few times that the Confederacy invades the North, you have Southern soldiers and Northern civilians and how the two interact. But I think that um, what's, what's going to begin to emerge is how Northerners interacted with their own civilians. Uh, through newspapers, through letters back home, and how that influenced the way that the war was carried out and perceived on the home front um, is, I think, something that I'm looking forward to, to seeing, uh, how that's going to play out. And of course, um, the digitization, the extreme digitization of, of newspapers, and, and the fact that you can just type in a term into newspapers.com or wherever and be able to pull up all sorts of information is, I think, really going to open that, um, that, that tunnel to historians to sort of look at that experience between soldiers on the front lines and their supporters on the home front, their supporters or detractors on the home front. Newspapers are gold, absolutely gold. I'm saying that as a former journalist and journalism school professor and stuff, gold. So, Cecily, how about you? Uh, you know, how, you know, how's the field evolving since the, the 150th? I think one, you know, trend that I'm always interested in is the way that since the sesquicentennial historians have internationalized the war in kind of new ways, not like traditional diplomatic history, which is really kind of a forgotten genre. And I hope it won't remain that way because I think diplomatic history is actually fascinating, but um, kind of the international influences on the war and then the war's kind of outward international influences. So Adrian Brettel's recent book, Colossal Ambitions, which is all about how um, the Confederate government kind of envisioned expanding their empire, you know, in, in Mexico, South America, which I think is an interesting kind of twist on this old question of Southern nationalism, which, you know, or Confederate nationalism that, you know, seemed to have been settled in, in the mid nineties, uh, maybe early two thousands, but it's kind of revived in these, these, these conversations about the war's international reach and kind of what were the ambitions, you know, beyond, because I think people like Jefferson Davis, they, they thought we need to think about how to win the war, but if we do, we also, we can't not have a plan for what's going to come next. So, uh, you know, they'd have looked pretty silly. So, um, so the kind of international dimensions and someone like Greg Downs' recent book, The Second American Revolution, which is about, um, you know, the effects in, in South America and in Europe. Um, and, you know, we always tie the American Revolution to the French Revolution, right? But I think we can start to think about the different kinds of kind of um, revolutions in 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 the kind of wider world that the Civil War inspires. And again, this super important point of this being a moment when a civil war doesn't tear a country apart, it actually, you know, preserves union and democracy when people thought it was, you know, at risk um, during the war. So that international, internationalization of the war, I think, has been one thing that I've seen that really excites me and I hope will, will continue. Um, because you have people whose civil war careers turn into international careers like Dan Sickles becomes the U.S. Minister to Spain. Is that a wise choice? We can talk about that another time, but it, it happens. 
<laughs> Sarah, how about you? How have you seen the kind of the, the field evolve? Um, I've been seeing a lot more interest in the memory side of things. And um, I would also say that I see a lot of questioning. And again, that kind of comes back to the historiography. Where did we get these ideas? Those sorts of things. Um, and different people are going to view that in a positive light. Other people may feel negatively about it. But I think if we're going back and trying to understand what were the people living in the war era, the soldiers in the ranks, the politicians in the, you know, the legislatures, the newspaper men, the civilians, if we're going back and trying to see what they were thinking, trying to get a better understanding all the way around, then I do think that this type of questioning has um, some good points to it. And then also, you know, questioning into memory itself, you know, um, why is this object interpreted in the way that it is? Is that an accurate interpretation of it? Um, so I think there's definitely a strain of that that we're seeing and probably will continue to see through the 160th. And I think that that's something that's especially relevant with current events, you know, as we grapple with things like monuments and flags and you know, people say, oh, you're, you're tearing down history or, and, and understanding that difference between history and memory and how things came about, um, super complicated stuff. Um, and I, I don't think we've necessarily learned those lessons, but I think we've at least started to learn to ask some of the questions. Um, but there's, I think, a lot more to learn about that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, uh, I don't know how you guys feel. It's a little frustrating sometimes when we can't even get people to remember, you know, a date for something or who was president when, then to kind of really expect them to get into some of these really layered, nuanced things. But uh, I guess that's why we're doing what we're doing, huh? <laughs> well, I think that's so important. I mean, with all of us working in the public history field is just don't throw up your hands and say, this is so complicated, no one's ever going to understand it. Because I do see some people doing that. And that frustrates me. It's like, no, we need to understand it. And we need to find ways to communicate it. And for those of us working in public history, we can and I think should be reading things that, you know, academics are writing and doing years long research on. And then can we find a way to communicate it, you know, not in the 300 page book, 300 page book is great, but um, my mom's okay if I say this, but so my mom's not going to read the 300 page book. She wants me to read it and tell her in a paragraph what I learned, why the war in the West is important, those sorts of things. So I think that's where public history comes in, in a really powerful way. So, hey, Kevin, you know what that's like. You've got someone who shows up at one of your sites. They're there for 30 minutes. That's what you got. Uh, how challenging is that? It's incredibly challenging. And I'll never forget when when things really started. Um, you know, I guess whatever you want to turn to, Charleston, Charlottesville, whatever. Um, when when that, that train started moving at an accelerated pace, um, if you will, somebody had told me, uh, and I'll never forget this, but they said, you know, the Civil War is more relevant now than it's ever has been. And I said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, it's all over the news. Everybody is talking about the Civil War and everybody has an opinion on it, whether they're Civil War historians or not. And I said, that's a really good point. And Sarah, to your point, 
people aren't, the average person is not going to be able to pick up a 300 page book to sort through all of these complexities. Because let's be honest, the Civil War, any history subject is an incredibly complex topic uh, beyond just what you can deliver in a 30 minute tour to somebody. But our job as public historians is to synthesize that so that people can come away with this. At least, you know, I always say they don't have to become convinced of anything when they leave your site, but if you get them thinking, that's what you want. If they're thinking about something, um, that's ultimately what you want. And, and to do that is incredibly difficult. Um, I, you know, I always go back to my early days at Harper's Ferry. One of the most, I'd say, I would argue one of the most controversial topics of the Civil War is John Brown. And I'd get everything from people ready to bend down on their knees worshiping him to people that thought he was just an awful guy. Um, terrorist was obviously a common word that was tossed around um, about John Brown and, and trying to bring people just, you know, provide. I, I remember trying that of you get somebody that, that is so high on John Brown and trying to give them the other side of the story, not because you disagree with them, but just to make them think. And then the next second they would leave and you get somebody else that comes in and thinks that John Brown's is an absolutely terrible person. And, and why do we, why do we even talk about him and, and trying to then all of a sudden you turn complete 180 and, and try to give them the other side of the story, just to get them to think and think about, or at least realize how complex these stories are. Uh, and again, I go back to what I said about these defined eras of the American Civil War. Americans, anybody, any human being, we want it to be easy, right? We want to be told the American Civil War started April 12, 1861, and it ends, let's say, April 9th, 1865. It's never that easy um, uh, for people, but that's what people want. And so if we can at least get them to start to chip away at those well-defined thoughts, beliefs about a certain era in history, um, then I think you know, we've, we've sort of done our job. You're getting them to think. Um, not, not that I'm saying that people can't think by themselves, um, but so many people come to historic sites, they pick up a historic book and they, they read it with preconceived notions of what they want to hear, what they expect to hear. And if you can show them just all the different complexities of a, a very complex era in our history, then I, think, um, then I think you've done your job with that. Cecily, I'm seeing a lot of uh, nodding your head. You look like you want to toss in an amen there or something. Yeah, no, I I, I have severe bobblehead syndrome. Um, the uh, no, I absolutely agree. You know, I'm I'm a, sort of a classroom teacher right now. But what's really gratifying is that if you put a Civil War course on the books, it fills up on day two of class registration. You know, I think that students um, they get to college and they have this vast array of choices you know for classes and in the history department somewhere like here at Penn State they probably have 50 or 60 and they go for the Civil War right away and they kind of compete to get in that class and so there is you know I think we should always remember a captive audience for the Civil War and this is a great thing about the topic we've all chosen to study we all know there are other periods of history in American history where there's not you know that audience is not quite as built in and so what's really gratifying is that um because it is in the news, we have this opportunity to, you know, really speak to this audience if we can, can leverage it, you know, in the right way. And, and I think when people throw up their hands, you know, you know, academic historians, especially they'll never understand, well, then you're not kind of doing the best that you can because they're actually coming to us now. <laughs> it's like the first time in the lives of historians, like most of the time you tell someone they're a historian, they're like out the door, but now they're like, 
oh, you can tell me more about this topic. And that's, it's a really great feeling. So I think we need to ride the wave, you know, as long as we can. Um, you know, and, you know, for me and, and my students, they want to know everything they can. They're like sponges. Um, I think one really important thing to note is that, you know, on the first day I have them type or say one word that they think caused the Civil War. And the last time I did it, a class of 40, 39 of them said slavery. So somewhere, somewhere along the line, they've been taught that, you know, since the sesquicentennial, these are all kids who were born post 9-11 and saying that like actually hurts me. But, you know, they in, in their classrooms, they're not learning those old narratives. They're learning kind of very, um, you know, clear civil war was caused by slavery. But now this memory debate, this monument debate is the thing they want to know about. Okay, we're fine. Slavery caused the civil war. No argument from us. Tell us about this kind of new thing about about these kind of political you know issues. So, the audience is absolutely there, um, and I think both you know Kevin and Sarah right. Even if you have thirty minutes with them, you have to get them thinking. You know, and get them to pick up the right books. I think you know Kevin said you know like they might only pick up one book, and if they're in the national park bookstore, you know we need to make sure that they're you know picking up. You, you want know, it to be an emerging civil that's war right. <laughs> provides that good first overview. <laughs> Well, I think also just like, um, I know I do a lot with social media in my job and just like being really aware, like anyone could see this post. What are they going to take away from the story that we're telling all month through our social media? And what are they going to take away just from this one post? And um, it's always enlightening to look at the comments um, when they come in. And sometimes it's like, hmm. That was not how I intended that to be to come across. So, you know, it's kind of this learning process, but, you know, using the digital resources that we have, um, especially since we're in COVID season, as I call it right now, you know, where there's not as much face to face, um, figuring out ways to get that out there. Um, and hopefully, as Kevin said, help people to think about the things that they've been taught or believe or want to explore. And then, you know, and we see it in the news. I think we also see it in history where people are susceptible to confirmation bias and they want to see the same old story one more time because it's what they know and it's what they're comfortable with. And, and uh, so it is a challenge as a public historian to get people to kind of think differently as Kevin talked about a little bit earlier. Um, I have two questions I want to ask you guys before we wrap up. First, uh, kind of the 800-pound gorilla, and we've sort of alluded to it, but race and the Civil War, um, we can have different conversations about that now than we could even 10 years ago. How would you guys characterize uh, the evolution of that sort of uh, topic and discussion? Uh, I think, Cecily, I think I'm up for you first now. I think. I See, I've lost track now. No, it's fine. I can sort of, you know, think about it. You know, I think... Um, there's always been, you know, a question of, you know, the kind of racial narrative of the war. And certainly, again, since the sesquicentennial, more work than ever on the African-American experience of the war in particular um, and USCT experience. And I think, you know, um, you know, Glory is a movie. Students still come in having seen it. Um, they kind of either saw it in school or they watched it. So it's certainly a, you know, a popular kind of topic. And then, unraveling emancipation and then that reconstruction story also kind of brings race more explicitly into um, 
into the conversation. So I think there are ways in which the field is, is starting to kind of more broadly talk about, you know, the questions of the civil war's consequences for race in this country. And it's interesting that the monument debate and the kind of Black Lives Matter movement started to become linked um, over the summer in kind of very explicit ways. And, and that protests around, you know, the this kind of remarkable images that we've all seen of Monument Avenue in Richmond and the, and the Lee statue and the kind of how that was repurposed as a as a as a point of protest for for you know this these questions about about race and I think one thing um, that we can talk about now, as you said, Chris, that maybe we weren't talking about you know at the centennial, which you know the centennial happens before the Civil Rights Act. I mean, it's it's kind of remarkable to kind of think about that timeline. Is that that you know the sort of the Great Society of Lyndon Johnson hadn't happened when the Civil War sesquicentennial ended. So it's really um, it's it's interesting to think kind of how how far we've come along, but I think certainly a ways to go. Um, but I think the field is is working harder than ever, especially in terms of kind of academic research on how do we better integrate um, these racial narratives into the Civil War, and how do we get um, you know stories of slavery, um, someone like the Volia Glimpse work, which is so um, kind of remarkable in bringing the narratives of kind of white plantation owners and enslaved women um, kind of all weaving through the war. So I think it's happening um, and I hope more and more of it continues to come because it's it's vital in many ways that you, the field is as diverse and welcoming as possible and that it can accommodate, you know, these questions and debates that arise around, you know, things like monuments and the lost cause. I think a lot of the dismantling of the lost cause has also helped open the way for the field to kind of grow and widen. There's less of that kind of protection over one kind of narrative of the war um, that now that we understand what the lost cause is and what it argued, we can kind of move past and say, here's what it obscured. As Sarah was saying earlier, you know, this question of memory at the time, historiography, once we dismantle that historiography, we can open up kind of new avenues to talk about these questions, I think. Sarah. Um, similar train of thought, I think just with um, kind of the questioning of some of the memory ideas and those sorts of things and um, the more availability of primary sources, you know, we're able to dig in a lot more. And I think um, there is a new commitment and I hope that a lot of researchers are making this commitment to tell the whole story. Um, so often I've looked at things that have been written in past decades then when I've gone and actually looked at the original sources, it's like, oh, they cut out the information about the contraband or, you know, freed men helping out at the hospital. It was just like this focus on the white women. And yet there's a bigger picture. There's a bigger story. And so I just hope that that continues to be focused on and told and, um, there's really powerful stories out there. There's things that we don't know that are going to be uncovered. And that's just really exciting that we have this kind of commitment to not sweep things under the carpet anymore, or at least hopefully people are making that commitment. And, you know, there's a lot that we'll learn. And as it was said earlier, it might not be in the comfort zone. And um, I know that that's something I had a, a text exchange today with um, an extended family member. And I had said something that I, it was history field 
um, related. And I thought he was aware of it and he wasn't. And we ended up having quite the exchange. And I realized that I needed to kind of pull back and be able to have a conversation and share some things to kind of then help him get to the point um, where I was in thinking about this issue. And I think that will also be important as public historians, because we might be so excited about that new book that came out and really delves deep into race relations and things like that. But the person who walks into our visitor center or who we meet on a battlefield tour, they might not be there in their thinking yet. So figuring out how to bridge that gap and help people feel like this discussion of race and race relations and those sorts of things it's important. Um, it can be painful, but it doesn't need to be as conflict-filled. Um, so I hope we'll see some of that. Kevin, uh, thoughts on how our conversations about race have evolved over the last 10 years in the context of the Civil War? Yeah, I think um, jumping off what, what Cecily had said, I think the word that I, I like to turn to is inclusivity. I don't even know if that's a word, but that's a word I'm going to create. We are writers. Uh, we can make up words. There you go. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, uh, being inclusive and, and something that's been sort of near and dear to my own research and, and writing and thought is the story of emancipation. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the historiography of, of emancipation, um, obviously, you walk in the National Mall of Washington, D.C., and you can't miss the Lincoln Memorial uh, and, and the idea that he is the emancipator. And, and I think since, um, you know, in, in so many years, obviously, historiography, people's thoughts, people's beliefs, they go through cycles. And I think what I've seen is in the last, I don't know, several decades, looking at the story of emancipation, there's been this constant argument of, well, who's responsible for emancipation? Is it Lincoln for for signing and issuing the Emancipation Proclamation and helping to push through the 13th Amendment uh, through Congress? Is it the soldiers on the ground that are truly for the first times in their lives, Northern soldiers at least, experiencing slavery and seeing enslaved persons? And they're the ones that are then getting back to the newspapers, writing home to their constituents. And, and you know, you think so much of a ripple effect as a, a top to bottom thing, but really this ripple effect is almost bottom to top of, of soldiers um, are experiencing slavery and they're writing back home about this. And then those people back home on the home front are putting in to Congress and to the legislatures of the states uh, representatives that are going to attack what they believe is the heart of the Confederacy and that is slavery. Or is it the enslaved themselves that are responsible, that are like the contraband that you see at Fortress Monroe in May of 1861, the ones that are there and simply by being there are putting the pressure on union generals to say, we got to do something about this. What's our option? The Lincoln administration isn't giving us any ideas at that point in the war. And so we're going to come up with our own plan uh, for this. And, and I think I just talked, I know for so long about diluting a, a 300 page book to a 30 minute talk and making complex history less complex. But at the same time, what I think our job is, is, is taking complex history and simply dialing those complexities down from a 300 page book to a 30 minute talk. Uh, you, you don't wanna get rid of the complexities, but what you want to show, and I think be inclusive as, as Sarah and Cecily have talked about, is showing that something like emancipation, it wasn't all Lincoln, it wasn't all Benjamin Butler, it, it was, wasn't all 
contraband that are fleeing to union lines, which is a huge part of it because they're putting the pressure on union soldiers, union commanders to say, we need a policy because we don't know what we're going to do with these people. Uh, it, it's all of it. It's, it's all a piece of the puzzle. And, and that's what makes history to me so interesting and, and so complex. But again, our job is to take that and, and give it to people in an inclusive way so that when somebody comes to a historic site, they get the story that they want, but they're also going to get a story that they might not expect. Um, and, and I think that's, that's so important for folks is, you know, people don't come to historic sites because um, they, they, people come to historic sites, people go anywhere because they want to be entertained, right? And they, they want to know the stories that they've heard so often before. Uh, but if you can, you can give them that, but then give them something else to make them think about that as well. And so um, showing that, you know, the, the story of something as complex as emancipation is inclusive. Lincoln was involved in it. Union officers were involved in it and union soldiers, but so too were the contraband and the enslaved that flee to union lines. Uh, it, it's a very complex story and it's, it makes it inclusive for all of your types of visitors that might show up um, at a site to realize, again, the complexity of something, but that they all play a part in, in the story of something like that. I think for me, one of the big challenges is to do all that and make it feel holistic and, and natural because sometimes there's a square peg in a round hole feel to it. And as soon as you start talking about race, there are some people who just automatically dismiss it like, oh, that's woke, blah, 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 blah. And, and I think that knee jerk reaction to wokeism um, really is a disservice to a conversation about race that I think we as a nation have to have and trying to figure out how to have that conversation um, is really challenging um, as, as events this past summer demonstrated. Uh, lots to talk about and really hard, you know. Um, so figuring all that out in, in a way that all feels natural, even if it's outside of the comfort zone, as, as Sarah mentioned, I think is, is a huge challenge for us. Um, I'm glad the three of you are on the front lines uh, kind of helping make some of that happen. All right, so my last question for you tonight, and I, what haven't I asked each of you that you wanted to be able to talk about that you haven't? Hmm. All right. And Kevin, I, I, I think I'm over to you. So what haven't I asked that you want to talk about? Um, well, I think that for myself and Sarah and Cecily, um, we were all products of the sesquicentennial in terms of, and, and Chris, I think you too, in terms of really boosting our footprint on the history field, um, boosting our careers. And it's something I'm sure all of us get at every single round table we might go to, any single classroom we might lecture to, uh, any single, <laughs> dinner table conversation we might have with family is what is it, what is it going to take to get the next generation um, interested in all this? And of course the 150th was a huge to do. Uh, I, I can remember there was no shortage of civil war events to go to. Uh, the 160th obviously isn't going to be, have that much of a footprint, but I think it still presents us as much of an opportunity to get the next generation uh, involved into the history field. And so uh, I don't have an answer here tonight of how to do that, but I think that's something that, you know, any anniversary is an opportunity that presents itself to us as historians is how are we going to get folks 
and, and we don't have to turn folks uh, every single time they, they come into our sphere of influence into a historian that's going to appear on a podcast or write for a blog or anything like that. But um, I always say, if you can spark somebody's interest that they might go home and read a book about it that they otherwise wouldn't have read, um, you don't have to turn them into a professional historian, but at least to make them aware and to have an interest, a vested interest in these stories and to share these stories, even if, again, it's not going to be to, uh, you know, millions of people that this podcast reaches, uh, hopeful thinking, um, but, um, you know, a, a, across the globe, but just somebody around the dinner table, just sharing these stories uh, with people and, and continuing to spread uh, our history and keep it alive, uh, I think is something that's crucially important anytime there's a, a big anniversary that, that comes around or just anytime uh, a, a single, you know, family shows up at a historic site. Uh, to, to get them to want to share the story and share the history of what they've learned, I think is crucially important. Good, thank you. Cecily, what have I not asked you tonight that you want an opportunity to talk about? Um, I, there's nothing that comes immediately to mind. Kevin gave such a good answer. I was so distracted by, by his thoughtful answer. <laughs> that I, oh, that's I nonsense. Not, I did not make the classic uh, move of uh, I'm just nodding and thinking of what I want to say next. I was actually listening to Kevin. Um, <laughs> I think it's a, you know, it's, it's, he made a really great point is, you know, yeah. this is always the fear. I always stroke my chin. Like, oh yeah. 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 That's right. And I'm really thinking about what am I going to say? Yeah. Right, right. So. <laughs> um, you know, my work, um, you know, I think a big question, you know, for me coming out of, you know, the sesquicentennial and in, in this COVID moment, but going forward is, is higher education is on a, a sort of a, a transformative path at, at the moment. And what is that going to mean? Um, not just for civil war history, um, but for history as a field and, and the way it's presented. And, and I think, you know, one thing that we're going to continue to think about and emerging civil wars on the front lines of this is, is history is going to become a much more popular medium and historical expertise is gonna become a very valuable commodity um, in, the, in the ways that you can kind of um, leverage that. And it doesn't have to be a graduate degree. You know, it could be years of experience in the field. Um, and often that's a much more kind of valuable, um, you know, thing, but, but what is the transformation of higher education going to mean for um, history and, and for the study of, of the civil war? And is it going to, democratize uh, history in some ways and is is the field going to kind of is the digitization of sources and all is it going to give more people the opportunity to become historians i think for a long time we embraced amateur historians bruce captain was not a trained historian and he's still one of the greatest to ever write about the war is there going to be a return to that with the availability of sources and the kind of deconstruction of the ivory tower you know maybe there's hope for new people getting into the field because they feel like they can be historians and that they don't have to hold a PhD to do so. And I hope that's something that, you know, we continue to talk about and think about and, and encourage because I think there's so much expertise and knowledge out there that doesn't have to be siloed in the ways that it often is. And to open these, you know, moments of exchange, whether it's a podcast like this or, you know, ECW, the comment section or on a battlefield um, tour, there, there's just going to be more and more opportunity to get people doing history as an act. And I, and I hope that, you know, coming out of this COVID moment, as we confront a very kind of changed landscape, you know, that's one, that's one result. And Sarah. 
What have I not asked you that you wanted to talk about today? Oh, I don't know. We covered a lot of good things. Those are both hard acts to follow. I understand. You know, I like, know that, that's tough. <laughs> um, I think I, I will kind of jump in a little bit where Cecily was, uh, I liked her phrasing there when we come out of this, I mean, coming into a post-COVID world, um, a, a nation that is grappling in some ways on the national state, at least city scale, with uh, memory, its effects, those sorts of things. Um, I don't know, over the past few months, some of some trends that I felt like I've seen in parts, parts, and I emphasize that, of the history field has been very dark. Um, everything is bad in the past. And um, I struggle with that concept. Um, and I'm encouraged to go back and read what people were writing at the time. That doesn't mean that it doesn't turn my stomach sometimes. It does. <laughs> there are things that you come across, even in soldiers' letters, you're like, oh my goodness, we need to talk about this. And then we have to figure out how to talk about it because it, it's going to rock the boat a little bit about what we all thought about Confederate cavalry. Um, but I digress. Um, but I'm just hoping that there will be a balance between the seriousness of looking at these complex and um, painful issues, um, but also keeping, being able to emphasize that there are positive lessons that we can learn from the past. And I think about some little cousins that I have and they send me pictures. They are, I think they're supposed to be drawings of myself um, with battlefield cannons. And they think it's really cool to be a historian. And I want the next generation who's eight years old, five years old, that generation right now to not feel like history is this dark thing that people get angry about and argue about. I want them to be able to look back and learn about difficult times but how people came through those difficult times and the lessons that we can learn, the positive and the negative from the past. So I'm hoping that there will be some sort of a balance of this um, as we come into this new world, um, going into 2021 and the 160th, that we'll be able to find a good balance for that, um, particularly in public um, history aspect of it. Very good. Lots of great stuff tonight. Uh, I hope folks take the time to go back and re-listen to this because uh, Cecily, Sarah, and, and Kevin have offered a tremendous amount of really cool insights to unpack. Um, what a great conversation tonight has been. Uh, all three of you, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. On behalf of Cecily, Sarah, and Kevin, I'm Chris Mikowski. Thanks for joining us here in the Emerging Civil War podcast. We will see you online and on the battlefield. And before we let you go, I just want to say thank you to our engineer, Jackson Mikowski, for his work behind the scenes, trying to make all of us sound good. Thank you, Jackson. Also, thanks to the Second South Carolina String Band for providing our theme music. You can find them online at www.civilwarband.com. 
www.emergingcivilwar.com. And don't forget to join us online at emergingcivilwar.com. There are 30 of us contributing content free every day to the blog. We'd love to have you part of that conversation to help you stay connected with America's defining event. www.emergingcivilwar.com. I'm Chris Makowski. On behalf of Kevin Pollack, Cecily Zander, and Sarah Byerly, thank you so much for joining us today. We hope we've given you a little something to think about. In the meantime, we'll see you online and on the battlefield. <laughs>